0: read and discuss 3000 years of the world's most groundbreaking books of philosophy, literature, mathematics, and more at St. John's College in person or online in Santa Fe or Annapolis more at sjc.edu/podcast welcome to the harper's podcast i'm your host Violet Luca, a new romantic relationship or something more nebulous can make your heart soar. And then you're just thinking about it all the time. You won't be able to think about anything else, actually. The feeling will start to control you. You'll be stuck wondering if they truly like you or whether you said the wrong thing that one time or if what they really meant when they said blah, blah, and all of a sudden, you've turned into the worst cliche imaginable. You won't be able to stop. Eros, or what could be called interstitial eroticism, is one of life's greatest, and by greatest I mean worst, paradoxical experiences. In the March issue, philosophy professor Agnes Callard discusses a period of her life that was dominated by Eros and draws from the works of Fernando Pessoa, Plato, William Somerset Maugham, and Lena Anderson for further insights into this universal, powerful force. I spoke with Collard about her essay, philosophy, literature, and the obnoxious pain of it all. I really enjoyed this essay. And perhaps, perhaps I can, perhaps I can explain why later on without revealing too much about myself. But <laughs> (laughs) First, I think might be helpful to start, uh, you know, noting that it's fitting that this exploration of Eros begins with a fantasy, specifically a fantasy about the end of Eros, or at least the end of the particular erotic attachment you describe in the piece. And this fantasy of an ending comes up in a number of guises throughout the story you tell. Would it be fair to say that wanting Eros to be over is a component of Eros? I think so. I think that there is
1: part of what Eros is, is like a period of transformation or change or something. And it's very unsettling. And you're constantly imagining what it would be like to be in the settled condition. And there are some times where the only form that that could possibly take to you, because you can't imagine happiness, is just imagining that it'll be over. Right.
0: And later on in the essay, you talk about how eros is the opposite of civility. And you also talk about how eros is this loss of control, you know, that, that lovers outsource the meaning of their lives to each other, and they try to create a we, but... A lot of people can't do that. (laughs) A lot of people cannot, you know, and so they're they're sort of displacing their desire on how much someone wants them. They're trying to kind of reconfigure themselves, and it it ends. It ends sort of in this twisted, (laughs) not sort of twisted, definitely twisted way in which you know you you're thinking you. Can fall into superstition. You re rethink and rethink and rethink and rethink the smallest interactions, and there's this loss of control, and so much of it comes comes to the fact that it's like this this inability to create a we, and I wonder how much of that has to do with you know like the times in which we live, where the idea is that oh. Couples are, are equal partners versus sort of the older works from literature and other philosophical sources you cite.
1: Yeah. So I want to pick up on one detail of the thing you said, which I think is really telling this thing where we always want to know whether the other person likes us. Like, it's so common, right, in the early part of a romantic relationship. Each person is worrying, does the other person like me? And people spend very little time worrying, do I like them? That, that I think is pr- very telling, right? Why? Well, I think it's a sign of being so deeply confused <laughs> that you think the other one is the one who has to figure this out, right? I mean, it's not because you're so sure that you like them. Like often you're not, right? It's like you want them to do the work of figuring out whether there should be a relationship here. Do they like me or not? I think that, that you know, there are probably a lot of differences, sort of cultural differences <laughs> between how Eros is handled at different periods of time. But maybe, yeah, it's it, it, it does seem to me that the fewer sort of formal structures there are regulating how you have to do it, the more it sort of can seem to a person like they have to do it themselves, right? And then that's where the sort of the danger of this trap, I think, gets bigger. So it's almost like there is a, There is probably just a general predicament that we're always in at every time in history with respect to Eros, no matter the equality or inequality of gender relations, et cetera, because you see these texts about like erotic madness sort of showing up like in every period basically of, of, of history from that I'm familiar with, there are such texts, right. Uh, In in every place that I'm familiar with, there are such texts, right. So it seems pretty universal, but the question is sort of like, how widespread is it in the culture? Like how often is it happening? Right. And, but I don't, I don't feel like I know that, you know, it's like, I haven't lived in another culture. If I think about, I happen to be watching a TV show called Stissel right now, which is about the sort of Haredi ultra-Orthodox community in Jerusalem, and part of it is about the romantic life and dating life and stuff. And and it's incredibly constrained, right, from our point of view. I mean, like dating is like you meet a couple of times before. It's not arranged marriage, but it's close to arranged marriage. And yet there are in a number of ways, actually, sort of portrayals of erratic madness that are fitted in both via, you know, a kind of a love that can't quite get going. There's one of those. And then there's like a betrayal so it's striking to me that even in this, you know, in this TV show that is really about like, I don't know, at least within our culture, one of the most regulated communities as far as Eros goes, the show itself ends up kind of foregrounding these instances of erotic madness. I guess it it might be a more, that might say something more about how much our attention is on the phenomenon, I guess, than how widespread it is in that community.
0: Right. And I mean, obviously... In that community, marriage is extremely important. Meeting, having someone and having children, like that's extremely important. So that's kind of where, you know, again, with, without this sort of regard for equality or whatever sort of different ideas or pressures we put on ourselves in the semi-secular West, right? But I, th- I think it's so, it's, it's so fascinating that, you know, you do, you do make it clear that this is consistent throughout time. But in the particular way that people now or people, secular people in the West, tend to sort of get through or attempt to get through arrows, is to try and reformulate themselves as a we. And, you know, even in like the worst relationships you've seen where there's this huge imbalance of power, the person who's kind of taking the brunt of it, the person who is taking the worst of it and is trying to justify you why they're staying with this person will say well we're partners right and we're equals and it's like this shield by which they can you know that's a that's another fantasy that they have that's contributing to this situation yeah i'll tell you
1: a weird thing that i did not predict that happened from this piece is like a number of people have written to me like by email gotten in touch with me and been like oh my god you described my life here's the weird part they're all men <laughs> <laughs> so like and i think it must be that like women maybe more have like a chance to reach out to their female friends and talk about this. But because I actually had a woman write to me and say, yeah, me and my female friends are all talking about your piece. Right. But, but the men are like, Oh my God, this is my life. You described my life. And, and like, none of them said something like we're partners, so I can't leave her. They're like, this is torture. She is like the one in control. But I, but, but I I can't, like, I can't control. Like the language was very much my language of like, I'm not under my own control anymore.
0: My will is not my own. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I I do think there is definitely a sociological component to that. A lot of men just don't talk about these things with their male friends. Right. Or they'll talk about it with their female friend because she'll understand. But I wanted to to go back to Plato, (laughs) all the way back to Plato. And one thing Plato's definition of Eros – makes very clear is that for him, eros was an ethical concept. If eros is, quote, the unreasoning desire that overpowers a person's considered impulse to do right, end quote, then there would seem to be no way to do eros ethically. So do you think there is an ethical eros or at least ethical ways of reacting to eros?
1: Uh, I think Plato
0: thinks there is.
1: (laughs) So you know that definition um, shows up early in the *Phaedrus*, and it's it's in a speech by Socrates. And then after that, like that's not the end of the dialogue. And in fact, in some way, it's sort of overturned by, um, as I I think I made like a little reference to this in the in the piece by a kind of like a philosophical sublimation of Eros, right? It's sort of like there is there is a way to do Eros, right? Namely, to sort of turn it in a philosophical direction. And you see this actually in a number of texts, not just in the Phaedrus, but also in the Symposium and in the Republic, that Eros is like this two-headed monster for Plato. Like he thinks that it is what drives us down into the very worst part of ourselves. And so like in the Republic, you get this that the unleashed Eros wants to commit incest and eat human flesh and like basically break every possible taboo, right? But then, but it also has these heights that it can reach of like philosophical knowledge. In the symposium in the Phaedrus, there's this idea of like, your love can take wings and take flight and you can ascend to this kind of philosophical contemplation That is importantly desexualized, right? Does not involve sexual activity, but that it, it can sort of be leveraged or deployed, right, to sort of break out of our attachment to convention, to bodily appetites, and then it can be sort of transformed in a philosophical direction. So that's something that Plato also saw as a potential of Eros. He saw as leading in these two different directions. And I don't discuss that second one much in the piece.
0: Right, no, I mean it it's interesting to hear you sort of bring up that component. I guess if you would like to expand on that, that'd be helpful, I think, to to understand this this terrible condition that we most more or less all of us go through.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think
0: that Plato
1: I thought about it a lot, actually, because I'm like, why can't I somehow turn this in the direction of philosophy? And it seems so (laughs) totally impossible. And Plato himself doesn't think that when you're in the throes of, so to speak, the bad kind of eros, you can turn it towards philosophy. It's more like you could sort of cultivate it from the beginning in a philosophical direction, right? And that for him involves sexual restraint and involves picking the right sort of person, And so I think that that's, I guess it's kind of close to the thing I said about thinking as a we rather than as an I, right? Especially if you think about philosophy for Socrates, maybe slightly less so for Plato, is fundamentally about being able to think with other people. That is not to think for yourself because you're not very good at doing that, but to think with another who can kind of correct your thoughts, right? And so there's this openness to the mind of another that is sort of what philosophical activity is. And you could see that as being erotic. It's tr- the mind transgressing in some way, its own boundaries. Right. But that's really like, it's like a different ball game <laughs> from romance for most of us. Right. So it's not, it's like, it's like you take the thing that was the seed that could have grown in this one way and you, you cultivate it in this totally distinct
0: way. Right. I mean, to what extent do you feel like that is a a feasible way to cultivate such a relationship. I mean, it's obviously, it depends person to person. But again, just thinking of how you're sort of displacing your own worth, what your own desire is onto this other person, you know, you are relinquishing control. So to what extent can you let arrows happen in a less messy, more ethical way?
1: I mean, I think that that wasn't a possibility for me with this person. I I did in some way keep trying to turn it in that direction, trying to make it philosophical. And it's just sort of like, well, if you pick the wrong person to start with, it's very hard to make up for that. So I guess I think that's why Plato says like it's very important to choose the right person.
0: That's that's one part of it. But well, we, to what extent do we have choice? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it might be, you know, I, I, I used to ride a motorcycle and there's a weird fact about when you're standing, holding your motorcycle, if you, if you let it lean to one side or the other, you, you can ride it, you can get it back straight. But if you let it lean too far at a certain point, it's heavier than your own strength. And I'm not very strong, right? My motorcycle's extremely heavy, right? So if I, if I maybe lean it more than 10 or 15 degrees or something, it's just going to fall over it's kind of like that where it's like, there's this initial range, right? There's maybe this opening period where you have like a little bit of control. And then there's a point you, it's sort of, at least that's my experience of it. You reach this point where if you let it lean beyond that point, you like don't have control anymore. And you just got to wait for it to crash on the ground and then just like (laughs) do what you can with the wreckage of
0: your life. Right. Got to wear leather to be careful, (laughs) To to keep your skin on. I loved, you know, hearing you sort of describe it that way, because I feel like this essay is really enjoyable because it takes kind of a more playful approach to a topic that's typically treated as like really heavy. And I mean, there are obvious reasons for that. But being in a relationship that others can see makes you miserable, but that you feel you can't leave is a story you know, almost everybody knows, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's almost taken on the role of myth. And generally it's told as a horror story, but characterizing arrows as a monster seems to give you some freedom to make fun of it and of your previous self. And I, I wonder if there's a story you could tell about how bringing a sense of humor to this subject became available to you. It's funny that you say that because from my
1: point of view, this piece is just like not at all humorous, and but I, I think you're not alone in responding in this way. So it like, and I, I've actually found in my life that whenever I try to be funny, it's not funny to people, and then when I'm not trying to be funny, they find it funny. So I have like zero control over whether I come off as humorous, and so I've like given up ever trying to be funny, and accept that sometimes I'm just going to come off as funny when I when I don't mean to be. I think the effect that you're seeing there is like there's a kind of massive amount of restraint that I'm exercising. Right. So like someone on Twitter said to me, they're like, Oh, do you, you know, do you feel like, are you glad that you had this experience? Cause it made your life more interesting or do you, you know, regret it? And I'm like, oh, like I 100% regretted it It was an unmitigated disaster cesspool of misery that if I could like turn the clock back, I would just undo it, right? There's no question (laughs) in my head, right? And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, oh, no, you didn't offend me at all in asking that question. You know, and in a way, I suppose the piece was written in such a way as to not give you immediate, like to make you immediately know my answer to that question, right? And that's in a way what you're picking up on as like humorous. And I think it's like one of the things that spurred me to write this was reading of human bondage for the first time. And, uh, I was reading it and I was like, Oh my God, this is so true. <laughs> and people are going to read this novel and they're going to think this is old fashioned. They're going to think that, 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 you know, Philip's madness is like, Oh, that's how people used to be in the past. I'm like, no, this is the real thing. And I'm like, I have to write it so that it sounds real. And I think that for me, what that meant was like, really dialing down on the drama, like on some level, I just wanted to, the the whole thing could have been an extended scream, you know, and I'm like, (laughs) I can't write that. So I gotta like detach myself. I gotta like take like a whole bunch of steps back in order to even write this and, and kind of like sell it as like a thing that happened. And so I think it's really that it's that detachment and to be like, to even be able to say this, to even be able to use words to describe it. <laughs> it, like it was like a horror story, right? And, but to use words to describe it is like precisely to adopt a pose that then like gives you kind of breathing room, right? And allows for the possibility of all these other reactions like laughter and a kind of pensive, like, oh, maybe this was kind of interesting, right? And, and, and so it, in a way, for me also, those reactions became possible through writing it. But like, otherwise I'm just
0: inclined to give an extended scream. Right. <laughs> well, I think, like, I definitely agree, like, sort of the detached, the detached nature of describing something that is so obviously messy, like that disjunction is, is funny. Mm-hmm. And I mean, also, there's a lot of humor that comes from seeing yourself in someone else, <laughs> or, or, thre- right. or being like, or sort of spiraling out your own sort of, like, memories of similar things that have happened to you and things that, you know, given the chance, you would also delete from your life. Right, And I guess that when you were telling this, I guess, how did you make decisions about which parts to tell? Because it is, it is, it is very evocative, but there's still a fair amount of mystery about what went on with you and this person.
1: Well, one big constraint is this person really, really, really doesn't want their identity to be revealed. And so that means that I couldn't say anything that would reveal their identity. Right. And so that actually cuts out. You'd be surprised how much that cuts out in terms of (laughs) what I can say. Right. And so I was really pretty careful in which anecdotes I told and whatever, to make that as like hard to reconstruct as possible. So that was one constraint. You know, another was like, I kind of didn't, in a way, I didn't fundamentally see the piece as being to describe this relationship. It was more like I wanted to describe this feeling of being trapped as against like this voice from the outside world of like, just walk away, you know, which I heard so many times. I'm just like, ah, I can't, I can't. And like, when you're on the outside of that, and you're saying to another person, just walk away, it's so unintelligible to you. Like, why are they making themselves miserable? And so what they wanted to do is be like, no, this is actually intelligible. And like, you know, mom is right. And Lena Anderson is right. And these, these novelists are like telling us this truth and we are like inclined to be like, Oh yeah, that's fun in a novel or something. I'm like, no, this truth is real life. (laughs) For some reason, we're only willing to hear it when it comes packaged in a novel. And so, you know, it was rather than sort of telling the whole story, what I was trying to do was tell whatever bits of it would
0: best sort of attune the reader to that feeling of being trapped. Mhm. And I mean, an interesting absence. Or maybe it's maybe it's not interesting, but again sort of talking about considering Eros and kind of the classic bad things that happen to one when you're tied up in something like this. There's no mention of sex. And obviously, you know, you don't you're not writing like a sex diary or being like, "Oh my god, this you know, you're this is you're on this other level, but you don't talk about that component of eros it's It's just sort of a a given. so I guess why did you make that choice? And you know there's obviously eroticism comes from the same root as eros, yeah. You know, it's
1: interesting. I just happen to be rereading Anna Karenina right now. And the whole sort of like first book of Anna Karenina and even maybe a first third of the second book is about this, this very slow build, right? Between Anna and Vronsky. And like, you know, he meets her, he's, he passes her on the train and their eyes meet. And then like they they're at parties and he follows her to St. Petersburg. And then, and you're like waiting, waiting, right? And then when they first sleep together, it's just like the way Tolstoy puts it is like, and that thing that he had been waiting for in this one way, and she had been waiting for another way had happened. Like it, it's, it's just totally passed over almost in like silence. Right. And I was very struck by that. And I'm like, you know, there's this way in which the reader has been waiting for this sort of erotic fulfillment and he doesn't want to show it to us. And I was like, huh, that's, you know, it, it might be that somehow the, the story of Eros is best told by leaving that out. Like I was inclined to leave out discussion of that. Tolstoy was inclined to leave out discussion of that. Plato says that like the, the the real or the true form of Eros in a way involves abstention from sex. Right. So that that's a kind of theme we can see. And like, maybe because the sexual act presents itself as a kind of fulfillment, but it's a very illusory sort of fulfillment of the, and an ending of the tension or something. Right. Like I quote a line from Anderson where, where Esther says like, you know, after the first time she has sex with Hugo, like she just felt that like nothing had actually been accomplished. (laughs) Right. So maybe it's like, maybe there's a, there's a sense of like, that would, that would
0: present itself as a kind of illusory ending mm. because i mean thinking of sex and in this and and eros sort of the classic terrible thing to do that everyone does or has done you've broken up with somebody you meet up with them to attempt to get closure and then you end up having sex mm. with your ex and and i mean you don't really get into this with that There is this illusion, that people often pursue this illusion of closure, and yet things like having sex with your ex after you broke up, just prolong it in this way that makes it, you know, you, you sort of start to go through the torture again.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. But it sort of seems to be more generally that any kind of contact with them is going through the torture. Right, meeting them is going through the torture. Seeing them is going through the torture. Googling them is going through the torture. <laughs> and maybe the difference might just be, well, having sex with them is is a way of um, digging yourself in even deeper <laughs> with respect to those other things. Um, but it could depend on the case, right? It could be that for some people, just actually seeing them. Is as powerful a um, uh, like there's this moment I I, I mentioned at the end of, of Human Bondage where Philip just sees Mildred on the street. Oh, sorry, he doesn't see her. He thinks he sees her. Actually, he doesn't even see her. He thinks he sees someone else, and he thinks it's her. And it's like this this, this his 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 insides you know turn inside out right. And and it's like he doesn't even see her. He just thought it was her. So you can have like the smallest thing. It doesn't, it doesn't require sex to be thrown back into it, but yes, that is a common way people throw themselves back into
0: it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I mean, again, I, I, I am fascinated by this idea of, you know, we, when we started talking this idea that when you're experiencing Eros, all you want is for it to end and you want to sort of stop feeling so out of control, so hurt, so self-searching, so, you know, kind of stuck re-examining different things of different sizes, almost getting into superstition, as you say, at one point. And that there really doesn't seem to be an end to it, but there also is. And it's, and that there's no clear path to achieving that. And especially, I mean, you talk about civility as sort of the opposite of Eros. So I would love to hear civility's relationship to closing off that that out of control experience
1: yeah i mean one thing that i so it's worth emphasizing that like that the way that the piece sort of ended up it might sound like i was saying civility is like really the cure in the sense that you could just start being civil in the throes of eros and i don't think that that's quite right like it's sort of like what by the time civility starts to seem like a relevant option for you it's mostly dead right and so like i think that there is just a long period during which there's not much you you could do at least that's how i experienced it there wasn't much i could do and but it's sort of there's a kind of vitality to eros like part of it is you feel very alive and civility is a kind of death of the self like there's nothing the inner you is just like not there and not getting expressed and you're just going through the motions so if you sort of allow yourself to be that dead person (laughs) who just goes through the motions, I think what it's almost like, it's like the extinguishing of a flame, you know, like it's like when it's mostly dead, you can kind of help it out the rest of the way by like, just not giving yourself the liberty to react, to think, to feel. And, and your emotions are sort of what you do is sort of dictated by just like a set of rules, and so for me, like, cause for me, a lot of the danger was I would sort of get like part way out, you know, and then I would slip back in. So it was like, I could get myself a lot of the way out. The problem was that I would just get back in again. And so the, the, that last 10% was really important. And I think that, that it was there where like just being polite got me out of that last 10%. Mm-hmm.
0: Again, at the risk of saying too much about myself, I really related to the circularity. <laughs> you know, sort of the cycles of kind of almost pulling yourself up and coming back in and then coming, you know, and then getting dragged back down, knowing the entire time that this is bad, but being unable to kind of stop it or really kind of regain self-control and put an end to it in a meaningful way or try to. I actually wanted to talk about your interview on the Ethics in Education podcast where you were asked what makes a good question. And you said there's really only one ingredient that, quote, you need to actually want to know the answer. And this answer made me want to flip the interview game for a second and ask if there's any question you really want to be asked about the subject of Eros that you never actually do get asked. And what do you wish people wanted to know the answer to when it comes to this subject?
1: So what you're really asking me, I think, is like, what would I want to know? Which is not the same thing as what would I want to be asked. Because in effect, if I really want to know it, then I don't know the answer. But I'll tell you that thing, the thing I really want to know, and I don't know the answer. And it is, is it possible to tell an objective and true story about Eros? That is, that's really what I tried to do. I tried to like, I tried to be sort of, I was giving my own experience, but I tried to be fair about it. But I, 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 I'm very conscious that, you know, if Hugo Olath had been telling this story, he would have told it differently. And like, I wonder about whether there can be, I mean, he wouldn't have told it at all, but still like, whether there can be a, a sort of an account of Eros, like a, a third person view in any sense or whether we're only ever getting sort of the narrative in somebody's head. That's something I really sort of struggle with. And like in the early days, I actually thought maybe he and I could like co-write this novel and like write it together and get like the full truth out there from both of our points of view. But yeah, had zero interest in that. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm sort of aware that just doing it on my own, as much as I try to correct for any biases or whatever like i'm i'm like massively massively biased in ways that i don't see and so that's something i wonder what would be the ideal way to tell such a story is there anything like an objective version of such a story that incorporates both points of view
0: right i mean to quote yvonne rayner feelings are facts however (laughs) i think what she meant by that is not that what you feel is the truth but rather What you felt was what you felt. So regardless of the situation you might have been in, you know, you may have had, quote, the wrong reaction to the situation, but you felt the way you felt. And that's an undeniable truth when it comes to a story like this or or retelling or attempting to be as objective as possible when it comes to something as messy and temperamental as this. You know, is there is there a way to settle on something that is more or less the truth, or do we have to sort of novelize it, let's say?
1: Right, right. It's like I it almost makes me wonder maybe that's why we accept these stories in the form of fiction, right? Where there we can sort of, you know, take for granted that it isn't a full account, right? It's not reality. It's fiction. But it, you know, and it's not so much, I mean, like, look, you can tell the story of Eros as a story of physics and particles moving in different directions, right? And that's a kind of objective view. But what I'm really sort of interested in is like the idea that it's not of incorporating every perspective, but of incorporating his perspective in addition to mine, right? Even if you only got those two, that wouldn't be the whole world. There'd be many other, you know, there are many biases that are shared or whatever, but But that question, and it may be, for instance, one thing you might think is like, yes, you could possibly do that in a case where there is enough common ground in terms of how the people see the relationship, but the bad ones are precisely the ones where there isn't that. They're precisely the romances whose stories cannot be told.
0: Mm -hmm. Because there was this failure to become a we. On some yeah, model. exactly, exactly. and that the private world that they've constructed is you know one partner has a private world and the other partner has a private world,
1: right, and each of those private worlds is like madness, <laughs> so it's like I'm just I'm just spewing some
0: madness onto the page. This is what it's <laughs> like to have that madness, right yeah, yeah, no, and I mean I, I, I love that idea because it is again, very accurate this this notion that you're in a private world. And that people around you cannot penetrate that world, even though there are certain points where you're like, yeah, this person's right. I shouldn't be accepting this, that, or the other. I guess, can you, is there a way to exist within, you know, sort of participate in society and still have that private world and, and function more or less normally? Or is it always going to be kind of a, a f- futile?
1: I think, I mean, in a way, when I was saying Eros feels very alive, right, that's sort of what I was referring to is like the presence of this inner life, this inner world. And I think that maybe the ideal version of that is something that is shared, at least with another one other person or something. Right. You can have like a shared world with another person. But you, you might ask, yeah, OK, but like what, what about what's left over? What about what you can't share with anyone? And there, there is always, I think, a residue for everyone, whether they're in a romantic relationship or not, a residue of your sort of inner life that you can't quite share with other people. And in the bad erotic relationship, that thing just becomes massive, but it's there in any case. And and, oh, something I thought of earlier that's sort of related is like, you know, in a way, what you could think Plato is saying is that philosophers are very erotic creatures, right? They're going to be. And and if it's funny, uh, Lena Anderson's protagonist, Esther, is a philosopher. <laughs> she studied philosophy, too. <laughs> Weird coincidence, right? Um, so maybe that the people who are prone, like that you can become especially that if you're a very erotic person, then you can also know about yourself. You're the kind of person who would be into philosophy and vice versa, right? So there's this thing in you, there's, there's this residue, right, that isn't captured socially, maybe it isn't captured in your friendships, in your marriage, in your relationships with your family, there's this like extra something, right? And that is... You know, both a kind of, it's a kind of wellspring of feeling alive. It is a potential source of breaking out of and rethinking your ways of acting. And I think it is a source of very profound loneliness. I think Mm. it's just all of those things.
0: And does the pain come from that loneliness? Or Or is it that you, you know, you want to share, you can't, or that you just sort of have to go through this by yourself? I think that
1: loneliness is just the feeling of being unable to complete a thought because you have
0: to think it by yourself and you can't mm. think it by yourself. That's interesting. Sorry. That's the, the stupidest thing I could say. That's interesting. <laughs> that's <no problem. laughs> it's true. It's true. You know, you cite Pessoa throughout the essay mm. who is someone I who was probably a virgin his entire life was very right. cut off from the world, but also very interested in creating private worlds. And he had these uh, alter egos that he would write as, and they would have these very elaborate backstories and converse with each other. And I guess when trying to connect through literature, turning to someone who, again, perhaps for somebody who's trying to pass through this terrible experience and get to the other side, is it more helpful to, to sort of turn to somebody who has completely eschewed the issue? in a weird way of, of, of sex and arrows, or is it more helpful to kind of turn to something like Anna Karenina and be like, okay, I'm just going to feel terrible.
1: So I didn't even, when I first read the book of disquiet, I didn't know like that Pessoa, you know, probably died a virgin. I mean, he talks about, he has a kind of contempt for a romantic life that's very evident in the book. He has this, like, he has this, like, there's this bit in the book where he's giving like, advice for unhappily married women and then he's like that's basically all women whether they're married or not (laughs) Um, and so but also just like a sense of like just that that women are like a foreign country that comes out in in the book so but but still I didn't like know that so but it's just I think that there's a kind of I don't know, like something like erotic restlessness that characterizes the way Pessoa thinks that felt very familiar to me in this state. So it was like, for me, that was more soothing, let's say, than reading something. I I did not have, I had already read Anna Karenina. I didn't have the impulse to reread it. And, you know, I felt like, one thing, one feeling I have is like, on the one hand, I know that this is like a classic situation. And on the other hand, I'm like, nobody has ever been through this before. And like, <laughs> right? I did have that, like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of man. And there's no <laughs> parallel or something. And so there was something about the fact that Pessoa wasn't even talking about it, that gave him like a way into my psyche, which had built up defenses around thinking, oh, my story of, toxic love is just like all these other stories.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a excellent point, I think. Because again, the worst, one of the worst parts of it, and there are many worst parts of going through this is just knowing that you're so blazingly selfish, and that you can't just step out of yourself, or that if you can step out of yourself for a second, you're almost immediately pulled back in. And that, that's a form of loneliness and it's also a kind of a, a, a failure of connection when more than ever you need someone else to help you complete these thoughts, but you can't because you've become this weird, selfish version of yourself and you can't, you can't escape. And not just selfish, but like predictable.
1: Yes. <laughs> Even yes, worse. Yes,
0: yes, This
1: <laughs> There's something like a cliche, you know, like here I am. I am a, cl- I'm a walking cliche <laughs> and I know that and I can't just
0: snap out of it. It's true. <laughs> well, I guess, is there anything else that you wanted to discuss in relationship to this or you feel like we didn't spend enough time on? I don't
1: think so. I, I guess like the one the one sort of conclusion I'm coming to is like there should be support groups for men who are going through this. Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's like that's like a, a thing that this essay is exposed for me is like a lot of men go through this and seem to not have anyone to talk to about it. That's a thought I had.
0: (laughs) No, the, the, there was a Saturday night live sketch where it was like finding male friends. So like the, a man wouldn't just sort of tell his wife or his partner like, all this dumb shit about basketball. Like, he could have a male friend assigned to him and they could kind of, like, go to a man park and meet with other men, like a dog park, and, you know, sniff around <laughs> and get out all this stuff. And then it would take the burden off of, you know, their partner, wife, whoever. But, yes, I that sketch was funny because uh, it's it's true to a certain It's very true, <laughs> unfortunately. I guess the last thing I would want to ask... The weird position that romantic relationships occupy in our culture, and I would argue probably in other cultures, where, you know, you can have a really excellent, you know, like you have your best friend and you would do anything for them. But then when you're in a situation where you're experiencing eros, you go way beyond what you would ever do for them. Like I had a friend who, uh, who, who, wanted to pay the phone bill of this guy she was kind of seeing because she knew he was broke. And this was at a time when I didn't have a job and I was going to brunch with her. And I was like, well, this is kind of, you know, what what's what's going on here? But also I understood it in some way. Like I understood why she had gotten to that point. And I knew it didn't mean that she liked me any less or that we weren't friends. I was just like, she's in this situation. And these are the places her her mind is taking her.
1: That's a great example. Yeah, um, I, I think that that's right. Like, there's a kind of going overboard with respect to generosity and attention that is, I guess, mm-hmm. because it's sort of like, look, you'll do anything to resolve this, right? It's not because you, it, like, I don't think, it, okay, it can be in some cases because like you love this the person so much and because you care about them more than anybody else. I'm, there are cases so. that that are like that one. Right. But a lot of time it's like, look in the short term, I just, I just need to sort of figure this out. And usually figure this out is code for like, make him love me. Right. But you would put to yourself as figure this out to disguise that you think that's the only form the figuring out could possibly take. And it's like, you'll just do anything because the pain is so great, right. That it actually seems reasonable to you. And maybe it sort of is reasonable in the sense that like from the outside, we're looking at the person, we're like, that's crazy. She can't afford to pay that phone bill. If she could, she should do it for someone she cares about more. But from the inside, it's more like, well, think about what the drug addict will do to get their next hit. Right. And it's like, there's a very, very intense pain. And the idea of like flying across the country, buying a car, paying for someone's phone bill seems like a trivial thing to do to relieve that.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This was cathartic and very insightful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. You've been listening to the Harper's Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times called Harper's America's Most Interesting Magazine, Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine, and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org save to subscribe for only $16.97.